If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Before we get started, a warning. This episode includes a brief mention of suicide. Please take care while listening. The very first modern credit card wasn't invented until the 1950s. And in the 1980s, credit card use was growing fast. So is credit card fraud. Looking at it from today is amateurish. But back then, identity theft wasn't as easy as it is now. That's David Barton. He was a police sergeant in the White Collar Crime Unit in Kansas City, Missouri in 1981. He's the guy from the last episode who was watching the evening news and realized Robert Richardson was actually someone else. James Lewis. Barton was seeing more and more credit card fraud cases come across his desk. And in Kansas City, there was one guy who seemed to have a prolific operation. This thief wouldn't just wait outside the victim's mailbox to swipe the card when it arrived at someone's house. Instead, he'd apply for new cards in the target's name and then have those cards sent to an address the victim had no idea about. So it was like, okay, well, I get it. This is how he's doing it, is they're setting these up with rural mailboxes. Meaning they're just putting them in the ground? Yep. Actually, it was a bucket of concrete with the pole and the mailbox so that all you had to do was wheel it up and stick it on the end. It was a fake mailbox. Well, the mailbox was real, but it wasn't associated with an actual house. This is how we got postal inspection involved, because some of the mail carriers caught on real quick. So wait a minute, this isn't right. Once they caught on to these mailboxes that didn't seem legit, the boxes would disappear. But if the mail carrier didn't catch on and the mail started coming to that address, that's when the fraud would continue. So Barton took the next step. We set up a surveillance, 24-hour surveillance, on this It was on Swartz Road in Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Kansas, right over the river from Missouri. And Swartz Road is one of the spots where there still was a mailbox standing there in a bucket of concrete along a narrow road dotted with houses. They parked their surveillance van outside one of the yards. One day, the detective in the van said, they're picking up the mailbox now. 
The detective snapped some pictures and watched as a man put the mailbox in the back of a station wagon. And away they went. When the photos were developed, Barton took a look. And I fell out of my chair. And I said, go to this address. And they went to that address, and there in the driveway was the AMC station wagon with the mailbox sticking out of the back of it. So that's when we started working on Jim Lewis. The Jim Lewis, the year before the Tylenol murders. I'm Stacy St. Clair. And I'm Christy Katowski. This is Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Episode 4, Gone to the Lake. So what was Lewis up to in Kansas City before the murders? He had a tax business, which he ran with his wife, Leanne. And uh, there were a number of his clients that he had uh, ripped off and some people that he had befriended. To move forward with this fraud case Barton was working on, he paired up with Rich Schollenberger. He was the postal inspector in Kansas City at the time. We investigate theft of mail, mail fraud. You know, there's a lot of different federal laws that we, we investigate. And they had a lot of tools at their disposal, like tracking devices. Like a brick, maybe a little bit smaller than the size of a brick. They were a little more basic back then. It had a little antenna that would hang down so you could get reception. and then He put one on Lewis's station wagon. So I crawled underneath his vehicle. I think it was like five in the morning because, of course, we don't want to be seen. So we were able to follow him at a distance and know when he stopped and then we could pull into that area after he's pulled away and see if there's boxes there or whatever. They watched as Lewis hit up the planted mailboxes around town, ones they hadn't even known about. And they followed him to libraries, where he was researching corporate records and city directories. Next step was to search Lewis's home. The team got a search warrant and headed over to Lewis's single-family house on Troost Avenue in Kansas City. That day, there was a clear blue sky. It was early December of 1981. When Rich Schollenberger arrived that morning, Lewis wasn't home. But his wife, Leanne, answered the door and called her husband to come home right away. And he did. Lewis then watched as the team searched. Inside the house, Schollenberger saw stuff everywhere. It looked to him like the home of a pack rat. It was... Surprising. <laughs> it was wall-to-wall papers. When I walked in, I think to the left, he had a fireplace, and stacked on each side of it was phone books, probably three or four foot high. And I remember thinking at the time, boy, if they ever had a fire, the house would burn down. He said there were papers piled in every room. It took hours to sort through. Schollenberger and his team were there till after dark. In that clutter, they found instructions on how to use rural mailboxes for the exact kind of scam Lewis was running. And they found details on how to commit other crimes. Actually, there were two loose-leaf binders of how-tos. How to disguise your handwriting, how to commit travel agency fraud. 
That one was interesting. Plus, he had equipment for making fake IDs. The house was like a startup space for a budding criminal enterprise, operated by someone with lots of ideas and lots of free time. Lewis later claimed that he was innocent of fraud and that someone else had access to his files. However, investigators learned that the victims had been scammed out of more than $17,000. That's about $50,000 today. And authorities say Lewis was looking to start fraud operations in other cities, too. Franchise them, like a McDonald's. So the investigative team got an arrest warrant. But when authorities drove over to arrest Lewis... He's gone. The station wagon wasn't in the driveway, and neighbors said they hadn't seen him in days. After that, David Barton moved on to other cases and transferred to an entirely different unit. He didn't catch wind of Lewis again until that moment, almost a year later, that you already know about, when Barton saw Lewis on TV. Wanted, in connection to that extortion letter that he'd sent to Johnson & Johnson. They are seeking these people, Robert and Nancy Richardson, the likely authors of the million-dollar extortion letter that Tylenol... Barton didn't know where Lewis was. He just knew that he'd fled the Kansas City area. Which is what he told the FBI agent working with his team when he called them that night. Dan Rather was still on TV, and the FBI here in Kansas City had already been notified. Right away, they made plans for Barton to meet with the Tylenol Task Force in Chicago. And we very quickly, the next morning, at like 7 in the morning, had everything arranged for us to get on an airplane and go up there. And we took most of the fraud evidence that was recovered on the search warrant. We put it in suitcases. And at the time, you were able to buy a ticket and put a suitcase in a seat. And that's what we did. Inside that suitcase, Barton carried more than evidence of fraud. He also had information about the time Lewis was investigated for a violent crime. When Barton arrived in Chicago, the morning after he called the FBI agent, he went straight to the task force office. It was a scene. There were more press outside than there were agents and detectives on the inside. Chicago police say three Kansas City detectives are in town with evidence concerning one Robert Richardson. The Richardsons are really James Lewis, a one-time Kansas City tax accountant and self-styled mastermind, and his wife, Leanne Lewis. I remember sitting in the middle of the room with suitcases of evidence on a desk and everybody else kind of ringing the whole room. Now that Barton and the task force were together, they could combine what they each knew about this man, James Lewis. In addition to the fraud schemes, there were details about the all-consuming grudges Lewis held and a series of aliases that he used. There were at least a dozen aliases. Robert Richardson, of course, plus Robert Johnson, David Woods, John Wilson. But there was something even more alarming than scamming clients out of their money. The credit card fraud wasn't the first time Barton had encountered Lewis. The first time had been a few years earlier. And that story begins with a totally different man. A man who went missing.
If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It was July 1978 in Kansas City, Missouri. In the 1970s, Kansas City was a nice mid-sized town to live in. It was affordable and walkable. Even the downtown area had a suburban neighborhoody feel. Big homes, green lawns, a wave to your neighbors kind of place. Especially in the part of town where a man named Raymond West lived. By 1978, Raymond was in his early 70s. He was a meticulous man who wore a wig and glasses. His cousin, John West, told us that Raymond had a good sense of humor. He did have a car he was driving us at a stoplight and got yelled at for his long hair that he needed a haircut. And he politely took his wig off and waved to the guy that said it. So he was a lot of fun to be around. He was, you know... Always had a smile on his face, but uh, he wasn't a flashy person at all, huh? And if it was a convertible, it wasn't a new one. It would have been an old, probably beat-up one. He counted his pennies. He only wrote checks for groceries or necessities, and it wasn't much every week that he did, and and, uh, he saved his money. Raymond had about $40,000 or $50,000 saved up back in 1978. He was living the retired life. He loved to garden and read the newspaper. He took care of his home, a bungalow with red and white awnings. His front yard was surrounded by rose-trimmed sidewalks, and he loved to walk and wave to his neighbors. It was that close-knit that everybody knew basically what everybody was doing. They just all, all always looked out for each other. Raymond often helped his neighbors out with chores. He was considered, quote, one of the good Samaritans of the neighborhood. He liked to be at home and, you know, sit down, sometimes sit down on his porch and wave to the neighbors as they walk by or whatever, so. Once a week, he went to a nearby flower shop. He would give his old newspapers to the florist for wrapping flowers. And he collected small figurines. He had a, a whale of a collection in, uh, in his house. It, it was his pride and joy. But in July of 1978... Raymond's relatives were worried. We kind of had a feeling, I think, deep down that something wasn't right and it wasn't going to be good. Raymond's friend Charles Banker was worried, too. Banker hadn't heard from Raymond in a few days. The two of them were close friends. 
They had the kind of friendship where it was weird to go more than a few days without being in touch. Banker wanted to check on him. So he and his wife drove over to Raymond's house. When the bankers got there, Raymond's car was in the garage. But it seemed like no one was home. The bankers noticed something about Raymond's front door. It was padlocked. So they went around the back of the house. The back door was also locked. And there was a board holding up the door from inside. Banker went up to Raymond's bedroom window. He stood in a flower pot to take a look inside. Raymond had Venetian blinds, and the blinds were open, just a few inches above the windowsill. Through the window, Banker saw the bed was unmade and the sheet was pulled back, but no sign of Raymond. Banker called the police. When Kansas City police showed up at the house, Banker told them about Raymond West's taxman, a local accountant by the name of James Lewis. As we know, Lewis also lived in Kansas City. That's where he and his wife Leanne ran their tax business, Lewis and Lewis, out of their home. Maybe the taxman knew something, Banker thought. He wanted the police to find out. He was the one that pushed the department that there's something wrong, that uh, Raymond West is something bad's happened to him. That's David Barton again, the sergeant who would go on to investigate Lewis's mail fraud a few years after this. At this point in July 1978, though, Barton didn't know anything about Lewis. Barton had been working three or four other murders at the time and was getting ready to move into his new role at the department. We're going to tell you the next part of this story as far as our documents and interviews can take us. The Kansas City Police Department has refused to provide records to us. But we did get our hands on three detailed memos that gave us a fuller picture. And during our investigation, we drove out to Kansas City and talked to a few key sources who helped fill in the details. One of those people was... James Bell, and in 1978... I was an assistant Jackson County prosecuting attorney. When police contacted Lewis, this is what Lewis said according to those records. Jim Lewis claimed that he'd gone to the Lake of the Ozarks with his girlfriend, and that's why he wasn't responding when Mr. Banker went over there to see about his friend. That would have made sense. It was a summer weekend in the Midwest where July was hot and humid. A perfect time of year for Raymond to take a trip to the lake. But that didn't make sense to his friend Banker, because Raymond didn't have a girlfriend. And Banker was pretty sure Raymond wouldn't leave town without telling him. After the police talked to Lewis, James Lewis himself called Charles Banker. And according to the memos we obtained, Lewis told Banker a different story. That their friend Raymond went on a trip to the Missouri Historical Society, not the Ozarks. Raymond would be back in three or four days. And according to one memo, Lewis said Raymond was all right. 
But Banker was still worried, so he tried to call his friend. No answer. Banker decided to file a missing persons report with the Kansas City Police. And he went back to Raymond's house. It had been about three days since anyone had seen him. At first, when Banker got to the house, it seemed like everything was the same as it was before. Padlock was still in place. Rear door was still secure. Car was still in the garage. But something was different. Raymond's front door had a note on it. Which read that Mr. West has gone to the Ozarks for three to four days for further info, contact Jim. The note was on Lewis and Lewis stationery. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The note on the door wasn't the only thing that Banker noticed when he was at Raymond's home again. He saw something in Raymond's bedroom window, too. Raymond's Venetian blind. Before, it had been raised just enough that Banker could see inside the bedroom. And now the shade has been lowered, which told him that someone had been inside his house. Banker called the police again. When they got there, the police forced their way inside and Banker followed. They went into the guest bedroom, where Raymond liked to sit and listen to music. He entered the house with the officers and noticed that a green lawn chair, which had been in the spare southeast bedroom. Okay, this is the southeast bedroom. This is southwest. So they made it into there, because he saw, he noticed that the green lawn chair, which had been in the spare bedroom, was missing and that a sheet and pillow was on the floor where the chair had been. He stated he then walked into the southwest bedroom and noticed that the bedspread and top sheet had been removed and the bed was covered only by a single sheet. He stated that he and the police walked through the house and did not find anything out of the ordinary. There was one thing that piqued their interest, though. After forcing their way inside, he found a second note lying on the coffee table, which read, Please don't disturb until after 1 p.m. sleeping late. Signed, Raymond. 
And this alerted Mr. Banker that Raymond West never signed his name Raymond. It was always Ray. Banker decided to change the padlock on the door. That's when, according to the account Banker gave to police, Lewis showed up. When we talked to James Bell, the retired prosecutor, Christy read from a memo that he showed us. And here we are. We've got Mr. Banker, who's changing the padlock or the lock on the door, fixing it. And James Lewis drives up, ran up to the front porch and asked him, what the hell are you doing? And then he told Lewis that he was putting new locks on the house, and he could tell that Lewis was very mad, but did not say anything else to him. Lewis was standing close to him and breathing heavily. Picked up the hammer. Lewis held the hammer that Banker had been using to change the padlock. But Banker kept working. He told police that Lewis, fuming, got back in his car. And then he went and, and acted like he was driving off, but instead he went down and a block away and parked behind a delivery van. And Banker and his buddy saw Lewis hiding behind the delivery van, so they decided to wait him out. And when the delivery van left, Lewis sat there for another five minutes, and finally Lewis drives off. I was kind of given the responsibility at the beginning to pull things together, try to get a chronology from the missing persons report, put everything in perspective, try to look through everything and put it in order. Barton again. And then at the same time, I was given the responsibility to run down the forged check that had been brought in by a couple of detectives. So there was a small bank there on Truce that's no longer there. A uh, little neighborhood bank like we used to have. I remember the bank that had this old stone facade on the front that made it look like this huge bank, but it was small. Raymond stopped by the bank at least once a week. They knew Raymond West very well. He would walk up to the bank. And back then, most everybody did their bank transactions in person in the bank. Raymond would make sure to notify the teller if he was going to write a check for anything over $100. And when a check all of a sudden appeared on his account for $5,000, the red flag went off. That $5,000 check hit Raymond's bank right around the time he went missing. And when the bank couldn't get a hold of him to verify the check, they returned it as being a forgery. And the check was made out to Lewis & Lewis, James Lewis's tax business. Records show that Lewis told police he cashed it himself. He was Raymond's accountant, but $5,000 was a lot of money in 1978. Just none of a jive. It just didn't fit together. So the Kansas City PD decided to dig in further. Adults are allowed to go off the grid and take a trip without telling anyone, but something here seemed off. He was a missing person. Foul play feared. And the Kansas City police had their eyes on the taxman Lewis as their suspect. On Sunday, July 23, 1978, the night before he went missing, 
Raymond made a call to his friend Candy. It was around dinner time when Raymond spoke with her. He said that he had just gotten back from the grocery store. He said he had eaten some spinach and it upset his stomach. Records show that Raymond also told Candy that his tax man had been hanging around the house lately against his wishes. He didn't understand why, but he thought it was fishy. No one was able to place Raymond West alive after 7.30 that night when he hung up the phone with Candy. Neighbors said that he was seen speaking to Lewis almost every day up to his disappearance. Three weeks later, Charles Banker and the Kansas City police went back to Raymond's house again. And for the first time, Banker and the police took notice of things they missed twice before. There was blood on the floor and blood-stained sheets. In one of the bedrooms, there was a stain, blood, on the closet ceiling. They noticed there was a way up to the attic from inside the closet. They pulled the door open and climbed upstairs. That's when they saw the body of Raymond West. A few decades before James Lewis was a tax man in Kansas City, he was a little boy growing up in rural Missouri. He didn't have an easy upbringing. When we started diving into the story, we interviewed lots of people who crossed paths with Lewis over the years. Their memories filled in the life of a man with big ideas. Some of the most telling details about Lewis's life come from the thousands of pages of court transcripts, parole documents, and psychological assessments about him. We've combed through all of them. Lewis was born in 1946, Memphis, Tennessee, into a poor family. He was the last child of seven. His birth name was Theodore Elmer Wilson, but we're going to keep calling him James Lewis, or Lewis, because that's what he has gone by most of his life. His birth father abandoned the family when he was a baby. His birth mom moved the kids to Missouri, and shortly after that, she abandoned them too. When Lewis was two, a couple named Floyd and Charlotte Lewis became his parents. They adopted him and renamed him James. The family lived on a small farm near Joplin in southwest Missouri. Lewis was a quiet kid and kind of a loner. He didn't have a lot of friends. When Lewis was 12, his father died. His mother eventually remarried, and Lewis gained a stepfather. Federal records detail what happened next. When Lewis was 19, he went missing for two days. He was found in a shallow farm pond, and it was assumed that he was attempting to drown himself. When Lewis was brought home after the incident, he was furious. He demanded the key to his stepfather's gun cabinet. His stepfather resisted. And that's when Lewis allegedly bruised and broke his stepfather's ribs and threatened him and his mother with an axe. His stepfather filed an assault complaint, and Lewis was arrested later that day. Lewis's mother filed a petition to put him in a mental institution, 
The criminal complaint was dismissed, but Lewis was committed to the Missouri State Hospital. Lewis denied assaulting his parents, saying they concocted the assault charge so that he could enter a mental institution and avoid the Vietnam War draft. He would also later deny trying to harm himself. When Lewis was in his 20s, he moved to Kansas City and enrolled in college classes. He failed classes in his first semester, though, and he dropped out. Later, he re-enrolled and got some average grades but failed more classes. College wasn't a complete failure, though. That's where he met Leanne Miller in 1968. They dated for less than a year and then got married. Leanne's background was different from Lewis's. She was tight with her parents. They even gave Leanne and Lewis a house as a gift. Leanne and Lewis settled down in a bungalow and started a family. Their neighborhood was Midtown, Kansas City. They seemed to like the bustle of a city. In June 1969, they had a baby girl. Her name was Tony. The FBI reports say that Lewis was a committed parent. He also took a clinical interest in his baby daughter. Tony was born with some health complications. She had Down syndrome and a heart defect. When she was about three months old, she had a major heart surgery. She survived the surgery, and Leanne and Lewis became very active in a support group for parents of children who have Down syndrome. In 1970, when Tony was still a baby, Lewis started working at a local tax business. The owner said he hired Lewis because of his good handwriting even though his skill in tax preparation was mediocre. One day at work, Lewis and his boss got into an argument over a calculator. National Archive records say that Lewis threatened to kick his boss's teeth down his throat. He never did, but he did stop working for that guy. Later, Lewis said his former boss made up the story because he was angry at him for what he did next. Leanne had accounting experience, so the couple decided to open a business together. They called it Lewis & Lewis Tax Service and worked from a home office. They did have some happy customers, but later an IRS agent would categorize his work as sloppy. Lewis took offense to that. Leanne's parents also had an opinion about the business. From their perspective, it seemed like Leanne carried the load while Lewis was just sitting around thinking. In their opinion, Lewis didn't seem all that busy working. But he was doing more than just sitting around thinking. A lot more. While Lewis and Leanne worked from the home, Tony would sit in the window and greet people walking by. One of those people was an elderly man. Raymond West walked the neighborhood all the time. And it's right around the corner from where Lewis lived. David Barton from Kansas City. And uh, Raymond West endeared himself to them because um, West would walk by his house all the time. And so they were quote-unquote friendly. And um, Lewis did his taxes for a couple of years. 
Raymond West, the man who went missing in 1978. The man who had his taxes prepared by James Lewis. Raymond lived in the same neighborhood as Lewis, and he got to know the whole Lewis family. When Tony was five, she had another major heart surgery. This time, she didn't survive. She died in the weeks after her operation. According to FBI documents, the Lewises seemed to accept the death of their child. Four years after Tony's death, Lewis started visiting his tax client, Raymond West, more and more. West did not like the pushiness of Lewis, that Lewis was getting too close and trying to get too close, and he was kind of alarmed by it. Too close, like in his business, or...? Maybe too nosy, hanging around too much. Records show that this was right around the time Raymond told his friend the tax man was hanging around, acting fishy. And weeks later, police climbed up into Raymond's attic and found his body lying there. For exclusive details about the Tylenol murders and a transcript of this episode, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol murders. If you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or behaviors, please direct them to a healthcare provider immediately or call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Just dial 988. Unsealed, The Tylenol Murders is executive produced by Will Malnati from At Will Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by Claire Ty, Jessica Glazer, and Ann-Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Fact-checked by Wu Dan Yan. Production support from Clementine Ford, Molly Getman, Zach Rapone, Matt Hickey, Andrew Holtzberger, Seth Richardson, and Mark Van Hare. Mixed by Daniel Turek. Original music by Hannes Brown. And reported by us, Christy Katowski and Stacey St. Clair. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.